0: Well, good morning again, church family, and I am so glad that you're here today as we continue our Genesis series that we've kicked off for the summer, and I want to encourage you to grab a bulletin to follow along, take some notes, this is a this is a teaching that's going to require some notes if you want to remember uh, this one, maybe you don't, that's okay too I guess, um, but uh, either that or get on the app and, and jump on there, the app was having a little trouble this morning, but I checked it just a moment ago. And it is good to go. You know, David, that song is perfect for, for what we want. Um, open the eyes of my heart is a word, a phrase actually that comes from the book of Ephesians uh, that is about Paul praying. It's a prayer of Paul to say, I, I pray that the eyes of your heart are open to this revelation of Jesus, that he is who he is. And when I sing that song, I always want to think, man, if we could just get a glimpse, right? If we could just get a glimpse of what is actually true, probably every worry, every problem, everything that we think we need to control, everything that we wring our hands about and, and, and sit in consternation about would be gone like that, if we just got a glimpse. And so I... I want you to know today I've prayed for that glimpse. I hope that you see a glimpse of heaven today. I pray that you see a glimpse of what God wants for your life and that you're drawn close to Him. We take so much of this for granted. We take so much of what we've got and we go through the motions. May we not do that today. If you're new with us today or if you're checking us out for the fifth or sixth time or hundredth time, we're just glad you're here. If you've been here your whole life, this is home and and we want you to feel that way. So happy Father's Day to everybody. This morning, we're going to return to the Garden of Eden, to this place that God, through his creation, Genesis 1 and 2, has, has spoken things into being, and then he's gotten close to the dirt, and he's made mankind, and at the end of day six, he declares all things to be tov meod, very good, or literally, goodness, muchness. So much overflowing goodness. His creation, he takes and he reigns over it by day seven. Day seven, he rests. And we we often think of that as him taking a nap, but that is not. It's enthronement language. What he is doing is he is looking at his creation and he says, it's not perfect. God doesn't deal in perfection. He deals in goodness. And I would even make the case that goodness is better than perfection. Because perfection is static, goodness is growing. It's all ever expanding. And he partners with mankind to say, go and make it good. Make it good. And he reigns over it, and he rests in that. Now in the text, before we get to Genesis chapter 3, we get this little detail about what's in the garden. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, and this is going to set us up. For chapter 3 of Genesis, it says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we have is a story that is opening up with a detail that's centered around two trees. The tree of life and the tree of Of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to put a little sign on them here today so we can keep them straight. This one today will be our tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think I can get that to hang on there, maybe. Tighten that up. Need my pliers. There we go. And this, for us, will be the tree of life. We're going to talk a lot about these today, and I want us to be able to keep these straight in our minds. What's going on in this story about two trees? Now, in our text that we just read, it seems to say that in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they both took up the middle space. Well, in English, that's not really the right interpretation. Because two trees cannot take up one space, right? We know that, right? Scientists out there, you know that. Two things cannot take up one space. In Hebrew, it's a little clearer. In Hebrew, it says that the Lord God made two trees, and in the middle of the garden was the tree of life, and along with the other trees was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, hang on to that detail, because we're going to come back to that We're going to come back around to that thought because in this garden, every tree is good for food except one tree, this guy, the tree of this knowledge. It's the one rule. There's only one law in God's good creation. Stay away, or not even stay away, just don't eat from this tree. So let's pick this up. That command is found in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, the Ish, Adam, you are to eat, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there's a stage being set in Genesis 2 for what's about to happen in Genesis 3. It's a story of two trees, one that is there for life. And we know from later on in the Bible that this tree, Revelation says it is for its leaves and for the healing of the nations. It's in heaven, right? And one that brings death. But by the time we get to chapter 3, the story adds another detail. It's not just a tale of two trees. It becomes the tale of... Of two trees and a crafty snake. Now we're gonna read this first 12 verses of chapter three here in a moment. We're actually gonna start in Genesis 2 a little bit. But I want you to have your ears set to hear and to look for the oddness of this story. Genesis 3 is written in a way that's supposed to get you to go, oh, that's strange, or that's weird. And so be listening for what you would look for to go, man, that is unique. Because there is unique things in this passage. And we're going to start it off here in chapter 2, verse 24. So listen along as I read this passage. Chapter 2 finishes with this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united, remember that from last week, with his wife, and they become one flesh. All right? Ezra connecto. Adam and Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. Then chapter 3 begins. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Or naked. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Man, what a story. There's these weird issues in this text. I would even maybe call them, there's some problems, details in the the text that make it exciting and unique. And I want to point out some weirdness in the text here for you. I want to show you some things that we, because we, have, we kind of have the lullaby effect with this story. We've heard it so much that we gloss over it. It's white noise to us. So I want to call back three areas that are strange about this story. And the first one's this. It's don't touch. In the story here, in verse 3, Eve says that God told them not to eat nor to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that is not true. We just read it back in chapter 2, 16. God never said, don't touch the tree. He said, don't eat the tree. So that brings up some interesting questions. What is Eve up to? Are they adding to God's command of chapter 2? Is Eve starting to twist some things Is she maybe wasn't told by Adam? Apparently the command came before Eve was even created. If we, follow, if, if, it's, if we follow a literal kind of idea here, was Adam maybe the first legalist ever? I mean, it probably doesn't take long to form legalists, right? So maybe he's the first legalist, and he's forming a fence of laws around this. We're not supposed to eat it, so we better not even touch it, right? That's what we did. You're not supposed to have sex, so you better not dance, right? That's what we used to do, right? That's how we become legalists, right? You guys are like, that's not in the Bible? It's not in the Bible, all right? Okay? <laughs> So, that's what we do. Maybe that's what is going on. I don't know. I'm not going to answer those questions this morning. If you're like, ooh, if that's where you're going, Jake, that sounds interesting. Well, most people in here aren't thinking that's interesting, so we're going to move on. I don't know. But something is askew. Something's off already in Eve's attitude about the tree. Now, the second thing that's interesting, and I'm going to try to set a record by saying this word more than any preacher's ever said it before in a sermon but something else is, is is weird about this passage is there is this continual routine return to the word naked and it's important to the text the word that's repeated out of any more than any other word in genesis chapter 2 and 3 is the word naked in 225 adam and eve were given this title almost it's almost like a header that they were naked and felt no shame then in down in three seven, after they both eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're told that their eyes are open and they realize their nakedness. They, I think that's so interesting that they don't go, "Oh no, we messed up, we sinned." They don't have a realization of, "Uh oh, we really did something wrong." What they first realize is nakedness. See, something is happening in creation. Something new. By them taking this has entered into God's goodness. Something that wasn't realized or even important to them before now has become important. Uh-oh, we are naked. Shame has come home. Down in three nine, and verse 10, God calls out to Adam and Eve and says, Where are you? And interesting that Adam says, I heard you walking in the garden... And he doesn't say, I hid because I sinned. He says, I hid because I realize my shame. I'm naked. And then God responds with an incredible question. It comes up again in the next verse, in verse 10. God says to him, "Not nah, why did you sin first? He does ask that question next. But the first question he asks is, who told you you were naked? It's so interesting. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. But the third weird thing that we need to notice about this chapter is this crafty snake. This is a bizarre twist into the story. If you'd first read the Bible for the first time, there's weird things going on when you read about this snake. Because the first line about this beast, a created being, apparently a snake, is that the snake is what? More crafty than all the other animals the Lord God had made. In English, we get that word. It's cunning. It's wily. It's clever. It's sly. We get that point in English. But I want to work with the Hebrew with y'all just for a little bit, because remember, the first original audience to hear Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are slaves who have come out of Egypt. And they're trying to understand a new story about a God who's created a world that's good and a world where there is rest and where creation begins with God's greatness and his love, right? And they're coming out of a world that is full of slavery and oppression. And they would be listening to this because they couldn't read. And there's this really cool detail that happens with this word crafty and the word "naked." in the Hebrew. Look at this. Here's a play on words that's happening. The word in Hebrew naked is arom. Okay? So that's how you pronounce it. Everybody say arom. Arom. The word nakedness is a play on words, and it's arom. Say arom. Arom. So you have naked and nakedness sound almost exactly like If you're listening to that, you'd really have to lean in. Are they talking about Something being naked, or are they talking about the state of, of being naked? Nakedness, all right? But here's where it gets interesting. The word crafty in Hebrew is the word arum. Say erum. Erum. There's a play on words happening in this text. So in 225, it tells us as a heading almost to chapter 3 that Adam and Eve were erum. They were naked and felt no shame. Then in the next verse... In chapter 3, verse 1, stick with me here, hang with me, focus in, all right? Some of you, let's get together here. You need to hear this, all right? In the next line in chapter 3, verse 1, in an oral society, you would hear, and the snake was a room. So you'd have to really lean in. Now, this is deliberate in the text. Moses, whoever wrote this, I mean, this is good writing, What they're saying is, notice the difference he's saying about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are vulnerable. They're naked, right? They have no shame. They're open. They're honest. They're innocent, maybe even a little naive. They're raw and bare with each other. They're living in a state of being beyond just physical nakedness. They are connected, right? They are one, right? Can you imagine Living in a garden or in a world where shame doesn't exist. Anybody like that? I kind of want to live there, right? Because, man, this, our culture is becoming so shame-driven. This is where Adam and Eve were. So you hear this word, erom. But then along came the snake, who's not naked, but he's erom. He's crafty. He looks like he's innocent, but he has an agenda. He looks like he has nothing to hide, but he's got something to hide. He looks like he's okay, and he's part of God's good creation, and he wants to keep up God's good creation, but he actually is about to twist the story. He has something to share. You with me? This is an incredible story. But one more weird thing. There is some strangeness here. Now, we pass over the details like it's normal, but guys, have you ever stopped to think, wait, hold up, there's a snake that can talk? Anybody ever done that? Anybody? No? Okay, right? We just, we just whitewash it. We just go, okay. But this is weird. There's only one other passage in the Bible where there's a talking animal, and that's in the book of Numbers with Balaam's donkey, right? And, we're, and, and we know that's weird. But here we kind of just wash over it like it's no big deal. But this is strange. You have a snake that can talk. We wash over and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I talked, you know, I talked to, talk to Copperhead out in the field the other day like it's normal. Like, right? I, I speak parcel tongue. Harry Potter joke. All right? All right? We wash over it like it's no big deal. But this is strange. Even more than that, it's apparent that the snake can walk. How do I know that? Well, in chapter 3, verse 14, you can read it. God curses the snake and says to him, because you have done this, because you've been crafty, because you've twisted my words, you will crawl on the belly all the days of your life. So apparently he wasn't crawling on his belly before. And the text is telling you this is a walking, talking snake. And then the final thing is it's weird about this is this snake can reason. He talks logically to Eve and methodically to her, working and tempting her. He sows seeds of doubt. He says in chapter 3, did God really say? And the emphasis on that sentence is right there. Did God really say? That's how we sow seeds in each other, doubt in each other. Did that really happen? I don't really believe that. That's what he's doing. He's reasoning. He's chipping away at her trust in her creator. Then in verse 4. He gives her incentive. Oh, if you eat this, you will be like God. You will have what God is holding back. He's starting to get and reason with her to say, God's holding out in you. God is not enough. God hasn't supplied all that you need. He's hiding something from you. Maybe to sum it up, you could think about this. And I, I you got to stick with me here. This is pretty. We're gonna we're gonna deep dive a little deeper into this. But guys, here's what's happening in chapter three. The snake is a beast that's acting like a man. That's the point of the story. Man is supposed to walk, talk, and reason. But there's a snake who is a created being, a beast, who walks, talks, justifies, and reasons. So let's dive a little deeper, and I want to ask a few questions to help us with this text. So we want to go back. What is Adam's first job? It's to name animals, right? His first job given in the garden is to name animals. And there was a purpose behind that. He named the animals so that he could see that he was different than them. And so that he could also see there was no suitable helper, Ezra Konegdo, that was equal to him. It was a moment, I think, a learning moment for Adam to realize he was the highest order of creation that mankind is different mankind is the only thing in creation that God breathes the breath of life into directly hovers over them and breathes life into humans are set apart from the animals so what does it mean to be human well, we know this right what sets us apart what's the real thing that makes us human it's that we're made in the image of God well, what does that mean, right? firing a lot of questions at you here. What's that mean? Well, God's almighty. Does that mean we're almighty? No. God's all-knowing. Does that mean we're all-knowing? Thank the Lord we're not. Right? God's all-powerful. Does that mean we're all-powerful? No. So what it mean that we're made in his image? Well, there's this detail in the text. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago. Is that the centerpiece of creation is rest. The middle word of the Genesis 1 poem is seasons and festivals. It's an idea that God puts in his creation that I'm going to give you rest. You're not slaves. I'm not a God who is going to be a taskmaster. I am a God, God is saying in Genesis 1, who is giving you Rest to start your day, evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. And then we see God in in the day seven take rest as well. So, what's it mean to be made in the image of God? I've heard it said this way God in his wisdom knows when to stop. He doesn't just keep creating. He gets to day six, he declares it very good, and he goes, that's good. See, goodness knows when to stop. Goodness knows when to be enough. So maybe what it means to be made in the image of God is to be people who trust the story enough to know when to say, I, we, have enough. Now if you're confused, let me put it this way: What's a beast? What's an animal do that's different than humans? When an animal's hungry, what does it do? It eats. When an animal wants to mate, it mates. When an animal wants something, it goes and takes it. It lives by desire and instinct. This is the heart of what the snake is doing. This is where come back around to me. Some of you are reading bulletins. Some of you are looking at Facebook. Come back around here, okay? All right? This is good teaching. I'm not, this is, this is the Bible. This is good teaching. I'm not propping up myself, okay? This is, this is good teaching, okay? Here's the snake's temptation. The snake is a beast acting like a man, tempting Adam and Eve to act like a beast. You don't have enough. God is holding out on you. Act like an animal. You with me? Now, that's, where Genesis 3 rests, because we all have a problem with learning enough. We all want more. So did Adam and Eve. We want more stuff, more accolade, more of what we desire. We act like animals. We want more freedom. We want more control. We want more clothes, we want more social media likes, we want more social media, more influence, more reputation, more cars, more money, more sex, more pornography, more secrets, more gossip, more power. We all want more. And that is the temptation, the snake. It's why he's so crafty. He says, I know you want more. God's holding out on you. But church family, may we remember this that the opposite of more is not less. The opposite of more is enough. It's enough. Here's what chapter 3 says, verse 3. Eve says this, right? We're we'll gonna look at a little detail here that'll bring this all together. Okay. Eve says, but God did say you must not eat from the tree or eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of of the garden. You must not eat from the tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And if you touch it, and you must not touch it, or you will die. It's come full circle. Hold up, Eve. Chapter 2 9 doesn't say that this tree is in the middle of the garden. But she just declared that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the middle of a garden. What tree was in the middle of the garden? Tree of life, right? Y'all with me? So, what's going on here? The snake is doing something. Why is she then telling the snake that God said, Don't eat from this tree that's in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil? It can't be there. But here's the point this tree has become Eve's middle of her garden. This has become the middle of Eve's garden. What she wants more than anything is the one thing she can't have. And the snake is twisting her mind to get her to think, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. She's moved the tree. She's replaced the tree that gives life with the tree of I don't have what I want. And when we replace what's supposed to be in the middle with something else, something that other than God's good creation and God's good life and his tree? Well, that's when paradise gives birth to ruin. That's where life gives birth to death, and it's where relationship gives birth to apathy. So I said all that this morning just to get to one question. Genesis 3 asks this question of every one of us. What? is in the middle of your garden. Because we all move trees. I want to say these things in love. And I'm doing my best to do that. Forgive me if I'm too passionate. But whenever we begin to make justifications... For our missing time with God, I'm just too busy, I'm just too tired, or when we begin to make justifications for finding life that is found with the fellowship of other believers and that thing that we call church that is an event, it is a lifestyle, you can be sure that somebody has moved the tree we've moved something else to the middle, right? Or whenever our jobs and successes and ambitions become the definitions of who we are and we feel less than, more and more in our life because we can't fill that hole inside of our hearts with all the things that we chase after, what, what, what have we done? Well, we can be sure that we have moved something else to the middle of our garden that isn't the tree of life. Man, church family, I'm going to, when we get off mission, which I think COVID has been part of the culprit there, but man, the... the, the the responsibility falls back on us, not on, not, on, not on our circumstance, but when a church family begins to divide and fight and argue about worship preference and styles, instead of going, how does this affect that outside these walls? Man, we've removed God's tree of life and put something else in the middle. Parents, and these are this one's pointed at me too. But when we raise our kids in a way in a great community that we have, and it almost guarantees it's almost too easy here, but but when we raise our kids in a way that guarantees that they're going to be, by the time they get out of high school, piled up with accomplishments and successes and trophies in athletics and in academics. While at the same time, we're doing all that, but we have little to zero concern about why there's not seniors and juniors sitting down here leading our youth group, we have moved the tree. When we are more concerned about piles of trophies than we are leaders in Christ, We have moved the tree. And if that insults you today, you need to hear my heart. Our job is to form disciples of Jesus. Period. And when we believe what God has given, what God has made, and who God is, is not enough Then we will always be trying to fill the middle of our lives with something other than God. Guys, God is enough. To be made in the image of God is to be made in a way to know this God is enough, and He has created me in His image, so therefore, guess what? I am enough. You're enough. So this morning, what we've got to learn to do is to move the tree back to where it goes. To seek the tree of life, not the tree of I want what I want. We've got to move it back. Wednesday or Thursday, I can't remember what day. What day were you baptized, Barrett? Thursday night, Barrett was baptized. So I texted him, I think Friday morning. I want to share this text with you guys. It was simple, but I loved it, Barrett. I didn't tell you I was going to do this. I just texted him and said, I'm so proud of you, Barrett, for your baptism. But look at what Barrett said. He said, Thank you. He said, I'm so glad I got to come to camp and get to know God better. And then he finished it with this. He just said this simple line, and I am surrendered to him. The tree is in the right place. Guys, what do we need to do? Church family, what do we need to do this morning to move the tree back? To take a risk, to stop living a mile wide and an inch deep as Christians. Some of you in here have been the same Christian for 30 years. Some of you in here have been the, I've known you and you've been mad at the same thing in this church family for the first, for for seven years, I've been here seven years next week and we've been mad about the same things, or I didn't get my way, or you didn't put my name in the bulletin, or whatever. Move the tree back. Move it back. Some of us have been a Christian for 45 years, but you've been the same Christian for 45 years. Move the tree back. Grow up. Let's move towards Christ. Take a risk today. I know that you guys are going, well, I'm not going for today. Take a risk, right? Not doing it today, right? Man, we're all laden with forbidden fruit, aren't we? Our pockets are full of it. Mine is. Let's take a risk today. Let's trust the story. I know that when I preach like this, it sounds like I'm being hard on y'all. Guys, I'm a passionate person because I'm hard on myself. And I'm not pointing fingers and I don't go, oh, man, this church is falling apart or anything like that. What I'm doing is saying, guys, we took a year of coasting. Let's move the tree back and let's serve this city. Let's show them that the tree of life is available to everybody who will come. Right? It is a river of life in Jesus Christ, and he is enough. Make him enough today. Whatever you need today, we're here for you. I preached a long time. I hope you held with me through that. Man, I love that story. Let's make God the middle of our garden again. If you need anything today, we're here for you. Uh, Baptistry's full if somebody's ready to make a decision to say, just like Barrett did, I am surrendering. I'm all in. Let's stand together and sing.